0: You're listening to Power and Public Space, a co-production of Drawing Matter and the Architecture Foundation. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In 2020, the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers opened at the University of Virginia, designed as a collaboration between Howler and Yoon Architecture, Professor Mabel O. Wilson, landscape architects Greg Bleem and Frank Dukes, and the artist Eto Otatigbe. As Professor Wilson has explained, civic buildings and monuments in the U.S. often become sites to imagine and enact American whiteness. And in this episode, Wilson discusses how the memorial was conceived and designed to assert its position within the campus's Eurocentric architectural context, whilst addressing the university's history of racism and recovering lost narratives of enslaved people in the process. We recorded this conversation in February of 2022. Wilson was in New York, where she's a professor in the School of Architecture at Columbia, and I was at the Architecture Foundation in London. And I should just let you know before we get started that Wilson and I spoke for over an hour, and there just wasn't enough space to fit it all in for this series. But there's a longer version of the interview on another Architecture Foundation podcast I make called Scaffold. So if you want to hear Professor Wilson speak more about her experience as a Black woman in architecture school, as well as her reflections on classicism and contemporary architecture, you can find that on Scaffold. All right, so here's my conversation with Professor Mabel O. Wilson. I'm hoping through this conversation, basically, I want to understand how one goes about designing a monument to Black life and Black history in the United States. But before we talk about the design of the memorial to enslaved laborers. I wondered if we could talk about the context that that memorial sits within for us, and that's the campus of the University of Virginia. So you've, you've mentioned elsewhere that civic buildings and monuments in the United States are often emblematic of a disavowal of the founding precepts of liberty, equality, and justice, where they become sites to imagine and enact American whiteness, And so you give examples like uh, the plans for uh, Washington, D.C., the Smithsonian Institute, the Virginia State Capitol, but the University of Virginia itself is no exception here. So I wondered if you could help me understand more about how whiteness is enacted through these kinds of buildings and monuments, and specifically through the um, design of the University of Virginia itself.
1: Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a really great question. And I appreciate that, that, you know, you you use the term whiteness, because I think that um, as a descriptor emergent from how human difference was racialized, um, you know, I mean, who can say when it began, but it really begins in, in the 15th century. And I think that, that, racialization of human difference that creates hierarchies and creates certain kinds of valuations, which are economic, which capitalism takes advantage of, but also political, which says who or who can't be citizen or, you know, literally within sciences, who, are, who can or cannot be human even, you know, that it produces um, these sorts of registers that really construct modernity and not just you know these buildings that you cite, you know in 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 the mid atlantic and in, in virginia and, and and i think in my own work it's been really important to start to understand that this isn't just architecture it's a it's a, it's a question of modernity um, and the ways in which liberal democracy liberal subjectivity Um, is constructed through Europe's project of colonization and eventually imperialism of Asia, Africa, and the New World. And so all of these differences are emergent. And architecture is completely, the, the Western arts of building is completely entangled with that project. And this specific context of the emergent institutions of American democracy, I think, are an excellent example to kind of show how, you know, that those those differences um, uh, that are racialized are, are emergent so that you can have monuments to freedom, natural rights, equality, liberty, justice, um, all of these things that are enshrined in the Declaration of Independence as the first blow against the monarchy and the constitution but yet all of these sites are built by enslaved labor on land taken from indigenous peoples. And the University of Virginia is no difference. It's the land of the Manahoke um, that were incrementally pushed off as English settlement moved westward into the Piedmont region. And that includes Thomas Jefferson's um, uh, ancestors um, who claimed large tracts of land. And as they claimed tracts of land, often through indigenous not indigenous, but indentured servants, you know, every time they brought over an indentured servant, they got 50 acres of land. Every time they bought a slave, they could get 50 acres of land. So it allowed Virginia's elite class, very powerful, wealthy class that included Jefferson and James Madison, George Washington to have immense power because they had so much land. And so someone like Jefferson you know, is a, you know he's, a, he's, a, he's a landowner, right? And he has this land that he says, well, this is perfect for the construction of a new educational institution that will train future, future, future um, leaders of the nation in medicine and in law and in business and in statesmanship, right? Um, and yet the whole thing is, is constructed by and run by enslaved labor, which is completely antithetical to those values.
0: I think maybe now's a good time to start talking about the way in which you and the team of architects and landscape architects, which included Heller and Yoon, uh, Greg Blame, Frank Dukes, and Eto Ototegbe, how you went about as a team reconceiving of the idea of a monument, given this really fraught tradition of, of monuments in the U.S.? Um.
1: I think um, it was a it, w- it was a um, it wasn't a, a, a traditional co- uh, competition, but a um, because of U- UVA is a public university, it was sort of a Tinder. You had to interview essentially, and I think we got the project. This is Edo wasn't yet a part of the team because we were going to help the university ask the questions to figure out what it was that they needed because they weren't quite sure. They knew they wanted to do a memorial. That came from student pressure over the years. They had already started an intensive project of understanding the history of slavery at the university, and there was a formal commission established by the president of the university to do that. So when we walked into that context in 2016, you know, there had at least been five years of work on the topic. And building up a knowledge, working through the archives, and also reaching out beyond the university to um, the African-American community of Charlottesville and also trying to figure out who might have been descended from this enslaved community. So we felt as a team that it was important to try to hear what it was that people wanted, what, what what their aspirations were, what kind of work they thought the um, memorial could do. And I think as a team, we understood the project in the context of Black Lives Matter, like we even talked about it in our um, in our presentation, that, that this was the social context in which memorials, particularly in Virginia, we showed a slide, I remember, of Black Lives Matter written on a monument um, on um, Monument Avenue in Richmond, right, which was this kind of pantheon of Confederate um, leaders and soldiers, and so we were clear, kind of about the problematic ways in which the past had been memorialized. Also in Charlottesville, you know, we, there again, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson had monuments and parks in the in the middle of the city. And Frank Dukes, who's a conflict mediator, had been involved with the city writing a blue ribbon document, a commission to write a document you know, explaining why it's necessary to remove, remove those. So that, that is the context in which we walked into. We were very sympathetic and in solidarity um, with that. And we knew it was going to be a very delicate conversation, but that we also had an incredible group of collaborators um, and people inside the university and outside the university that could help organize these kind of public conversations. And that was really, really important. Because one, we just needed to find out what 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 it was that people wanted, and two, people needed to feel that they were being heard for it to really matter, and um, that was key. And that kind of had to be designed. We had to really think about how we did that work. We had an online survey, which was great for alumni and for the students, so that we could, you know, just get feedback. We had over two hundred responses to that as well. So we had in person. You know, we met with alumni in Washington D.C. I mean, you know, we tried all of these. We had ambassadors that were going out into the community to meet with different organizations and groups and we talked to students in high school and we really try to kind of galvanize an understanding of what this might mean.
0: And just to to situate this in, um, in a kind of timeline, this consultation was happening from 2016 up until what time?
1: Well, the dialogues that we had in the community meetings and I mean, it basically went through the project even after it was done. I mean, our last, our last community meeting was in July, July of 2020, actually. Um, And so this was going on the entire time that we were working on the project because the university had no budget, they had no program and they had no site, which is very unusual. And, you know, as I've said, you know, in other contexts, It's a dream project or it's your worst nightmare. Uh, And it was very delicate given given the topic that we had to be very, very, very careful um, in making sure that the project was truthful about the history that happened at the university, about what went on, who was there. Um, And so that people, particularly the African-Americans and and blacks in Charlottesville, felt felt that the university was finally acknowledging that history.
0: Mm. I want to talk more now about the way that black lives and black history is rendered now in this new monument, taking into account, I guess, the challenges you faced in collecting names and and experiences of the people that the monument is memorializing. And what I'm thinking about first is this engraving that you've shown. I think it's an engraving. It may be a drawing that you've shown in one of your lectures of the campus after its completion. It's a kind of bird's eye view of the lawn with the various pavilions arranged symmetrically around it. And at the top is the, the Palladian rotunda. Um, and in the like lower left-hand corner you have to look very, very closely. There's a black woman carrying a white child. And there's this kind of sense that a forensic analysis of documentation of the university is required to even start to comprehend this other side of life on the campus, which is a slide of enslaved people. And even further to that point, you come through historical ledgers and correspondence again, to start to piece together the lives of these people. Could you tell me more about um, the discoveries you made and then how you translated those identities into uh, matter, into a monument?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, it was, um, you know, kind of engaging the slave archive. The university had set up something called the President's Commission to Study Slavery at the university. And so there were actually a really great group of historians who had gone through letters, ledgers of the university and started to record exactly how would a landscape of slavery, or as um, Lewis Nelson, you know, who's an architectural historian at uh, UVA and a member of the President's Commission and and really an important um, a part of, of uh, you know, kind of the group charged with the memorial, would describe a landscape of tyranny. And they had you know, found, you know, kind of in the correspondence of the wives of the professors. Um, um, work logs, you know, just come up with names, oftentimes no last name, just a name, which would identify a skill. Certainly there would be a date. So through that, the historians really had put together a kind of picture of um, how slavery worked at the university from the beginning of 1817 when Jefferson goes to discount the land. He shows up, with a group of enslaved men to start clearing the land. Um, so from that period, 1817 to 1865 and emancipation, the end of the civil war, there were enslaved people there. And so that work of the historians really gave us a sense of, of what that would mean. Um, you know, and what we heard from our engagements was, you know, like any monument, you want to have a figure, you want to have a name, you want dates, but that's the problem of an archive of slavery is that it's fragmentary um, and it's violent, and it's the exclusion from it is exactly what produces your condition of not being human, you know the essential sense that you have no place in history and you have no history because you are a piece of property and so contending with that was 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 difficult, and yet. As you saw the physical site, you started to understand, oh, you know, the 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 pavilions are two stories on the lawn side. So in that perspective, you 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 see you know this incredible view with the platonic form of the rotunda, you know, this crucible of the book and enlightenment. Um, but it's built up a kind of on a almost on a, a mound. And so on the backsides of those pavilions, there, it's actually three stories. And so there's a basement level and that's where the kitchens were. And that's where initially the enslaved people lived until, you know, they complained that Jefferson's architecture was inadequate and they had to start to build small dependencies, houses in the rear gardens, spaces, workspaces behind these beautiful serpentine walls that today those gardens are sort of, um, you know, kind of uh, beautiful parterred, gardens, you know, run by like the the, the garden club of, the, of UVA. But actually those were workyards where, you know, they slaughtered animals, cut wood, washed clothing, hung clothing. You know, it was a workyard hidden by, you know, the exquisite geometry and construction of that one brick thick serpentine wall, which some people would even argue that the specific height and that shape prevented the sound actually from traveling. So Jefferson understood that slavery was abhorrent. And he writes this in the Notes on the State of Virginia. He was concerned about moral degradation of the violence that was necessary to keep someone enslaved. So he hid it. He just, you know, he used the architectural section to disappear the the presence of the enslaved body. You see this in Monticello in the dining room where my, my colleague, um, Andrew, uh, um, Reinhold Martin, writes a really wonderful essay about that in our book, Race and Modern Architecture, about you know the ways in which the presence of the enslaved body can be disappeared through the dumb waiter that moves the wine, you know these apparatuses that that Jefferson makes so that the enslaved aren't there listening to the conversation right that is making the republic you know he hides at Monticello, he hides the dependencies below the house again, so you don't see them, so you have these pristine vistas like at UVA. So there's a way in which the architecture is doing a certain kind of of work. And so the ledgers, you know, help us understand, like, what was the day-to-day in those spaces.
0: I wondered if we could now talk about the form of the memorial to enslaved laborers and how, in a way, it does the work of um, affording a visibility or kind of reinstating or recuperating a history that up until this point was effectively invisible.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we understood, you know, from our public conversations that that, um, you know, that the memorial really needed to be be a site where, you know, that people could really understand the scale and scope um, of slavery. And and I would say I, I should be clear that the university didn't own that many people. It wasn't as if the university ran like a plantation at all. The university often just rented people. And that was not also, again, unusual. There was very much an economy of that plantations would rent, especially skilled workers. You know, like if you needed somebody who was an expert carpenter and somebody on another plantation or a business in town needed it, you would rent that person for a week. Or sometimes, you know, you could rent them for a year. That's how Washington, D.C. was, in fact, built. Um, and so to really get the sense of the 4,000 people that lived, worked, built, the university, it was very important to do that. And yet the problem was that we had an archive that was incomplete. So it was an attempt to try to both work against the monument form in the West, but also deal with a, 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 an archive that was fragmentary um, and laced with violence. And we, we heard, we had to name names. We were told, you know, we can't just have this abstract form. We need to have we need to see who these people were. And yet we don't know what they look like. There are very few photographs of the the enslaved. And so, you know, these became challenges for how we designed the memorial. We didn't even have a site. We had to help figure out, like, is it going to be at the lawn? You know, is it going to be at a different site that had been a site of a anatomical theater? Would it be on where it is now, the triangle of grass? And all of those sites produce different responses and scales of response. Um, And so the design process was was a complicated one. Plus we also, we had to share it with the public, but we also had to share it with the university. We also, fortunately, the the office of the architect um, at UVA was really extraordinary. Alice Rauscher, Mary Hughes, Sarita Herman, And then the different liaisons that we worked with within the university were incredibly helpful in terms of, you know, people in the board of um, getting, making sure the board of visitors understood what was going on, when the president needed to know, you know. So there were a lot of things that had to be juggled in the process of designing the project. But it was most important to have something that everyone felt spoke to the need to tell the truth about this community and try to construct the community. Um, And the the challenge was we just didn't have, we didn't have the names. So what we did was we, for the 4,000, there are marks, what we call memory marks on the, the arc of the interior arc of the memorial. So when you see these memory marks, you see names, many first names, but you also see things like laundress or fiddler or stonemason, or brick mason, um, servant, or you see mother or father or daughter or friend. And so you now see these names, not just as individuals, but as families and communities and workers. And this, we felt, really helped build a genealogical cloud for all of these people for whom we don't know. And then the marks were great because, you know, there's still archival work going on. Families are... Emerging, saying, "Oh, I am related to Thrumston Hearn, and I know these particular ancestors were there, so that we can now carve names onto the the memorial." And that has happened since the memorial has been completed.
0: And they do appear like wounds in the surface of the rock. And there's some imagery uh, up close of of these cuts um, after it's just rained, and um, it appears as if the monument is weeping, and it it. Um, Maybe sounds, I don't know, embellished or describe it like that now, but um, the imagery itself is incredibly powerful and moving. So it's that kind of experience that's around the outer arc. And then there's an inner arc, uh, which itself has a a timeline. Could you talk more about the timeline?
1: Yeah, um, the the cuts are, we refer to them as gashes, um, you know, and they were meant to kind of be, you know, like a kind of almost cutting And they could be read both ways. Like, you know, we were told, you know, we had to show the pain and suffering, but we needed to show the humanity and the dignity, right? Um, And scarification, you know, can also be in West African and African traditions a way of beautification. And so we were trying to, work with a kind of ambiguity in terms of how things get read. And that idea that the water, we didn't know the water would pool in that way and produce almost this, this kind of weeping, um, but it was simply a fortuitous outcome of just the ways in which the parabolic wall is actually um, uh, cut. Um, and so there's a in the middle. There is this gathering space that that's a ground, that's a lawn. And one of the first groups we talked to were the students who pushed for the memorial. Like the whole thing began because students demanded the university account for this history. That group who really pushed for a more fitting memorial. There was a plaque that was put, you know, about ten years ago or so. That wasn't enough for a new generation. They wanted a memorial. Um, and they wanted a place to gather. They felt that it was important that the memorial could also be a space for them to gather for activism. And so we knew we wanted to have some kind of center space. And and surrounding that center space is a kind of bench um, and timeline with a very, very, very thin um, uh, water feature, right, that washes over that timeline, you know, that has a number of entries, probably about 80 entries that, you know, starts with the first arrival of Africans in 1619 to Virginia, mentions 1817, uh, 1817, the group that comes with Jefferson, you know, and it comes from these letters, like we, you know, we tell like, you know, in 1830, so-and-so, so-and-so, and-so, and-so, and-so were here at the university, like we give the names and they were there, or, you know, Thrumston Hearn was a really great stonecutter, um, and he made the rotunda stairs. So, you know, it's an accounting of the daily life of the enslaved. We 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 account. There's there's there are a couple that describe when people ran away. Um, you know, they were found in the Orange County Jail and they were brought back. They were narratives of violence. There's a there's one that that actually describes a rape. Um, one that describes when students beat a student. Um, uh, we talk about, you know, when um, Isabella Gibbons arrives and, you know, the fact that she taught herself to, to read and write. And so that timeline ends with a quote from Isabella Gibbons because she's the only one that we have a photograph, which becomes the outside. This is the work that Etto does. Um, and, you know, she's we know her first name, last name, a date of death. We don't know when she was born. We know roughly when she arrives at the university to work, I believe, in Pavilion 6 as a cook and that she was self-taught how to read and write, which was, of course, illegal. Um, And she writes an article for the Freedmen's Recorder about an attempt to say, no, this is what we will remember of slavery, because she saw happening in, in 1867, the lost cause information, the idea that the slaves were happy they loved us and they still love us. And she was like, no, 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 no. What we remember is the violence. We remember the whip. We remember being chased by dogs, the collars, you know, the theft of children from their mothers. And we don't forget that we were killed. Um, and this is what we remember of slavery and not that we were just some docile, happy group of dancing enslaved people. And um, that's the quote that ends the, the timeline.
0: And it's incredibly powerful what's done with the uh, the image of Isabella. And could you talk more about how um, the photograph of her is translated or kind of represented in the memorial itself?
1: Um, well, one of the things that we heard in one of our meetings, and this is one I never forget this meeting. It was the one where we were finally settled on a site. We had the form of the circle, like we had the basic form, right? And it was this beautiful, pristine white Mm. model, you know, (laughs) which is a very architectural model. And we were like, yes, you know, and um, you know, we knew that this was the direction that we were going to push it. So we presented publicly in a forum at the Jefferson school to the public audience and, it was just like, that's all good and well, but this is very abstract and we don't know what this means. Mm. We need to see people. We need statuary. Mm. You know, they were thinking bronze, enslaved people, struggling. And we were like, we're not, we were so insistent of not going down that road. And, and so we came back and we just started to think, well, how can we embody, how can we make visible um, the enslaved. First, we, we thought of the sound of the spiritual, right? We knew that the parabolic curve would have certain sonic qualities. And so we thought about that. And um, we found an image of a work of an artist, Edo Otitigbe, And we really like the way in which he worked with this sense of like scarification. He is Nigerian-American. Um, but also dealing with, he does an amazing series with him wearing a hoodie. And the way the the ver vertical cuts, which he calls a kind of scarification work is that he appears and he disappears. He is seen with the hood on and the soon hood off, and we were really fascinated by eto 's work and we thought wow wouldn 't it be an amazing way to do something to the exterior and so we were really ecstatic that we were able to bring Eto on, who did a beautiful inscription of the eyes of Isabella Gibbons on the exterior. Translating that technique from small MDF boards, I believe, is how he he would make the work, and and it's, it's really beautiful and small, um, to this huge size um, um, memorial done in um, granite, um, uh, uh, Virginia Mist granite, so that the exterior has a kind of bush hammering surface, which is kind of like carving away, like if you were you know taking a chisel. Um, and Eto was sort of inspired by. Um, a uh, tombstone at the Daughter of Zion African-American um, uh, Cemetery. Um, and thinking of like, what would a labor of a stonemason be doing, carving away at the granite, making Thrimston Hearn, he's making the stair, he's a skilled scrapman. So this idea of the marking of the stone, of the labor was very important. But we also thought about scarification. There's that famous photograph of William who had been, I believe it's William, who had been beaten, you know, had been 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 whipped you know, and it kind of became an iconic abolitionist image. And, you know, the kind of scars of slavery, Um, but the scar can also be a sign of beauty. And so the exterior and the way in which, you know, the arc, the exterior arc is, you know, works as it has these kind of layerings of markings. And one of them is is this lenticular image of Isabella Gibbon's eyes that appears and disappears depending on, you know, the way in which the light hits it in the position of the body. So she's a very ghostly presence as opposed to let's say the the bronze monument of um, Thomas Jefferson that sits in front of the rotunda. So there's an interesting kind of dialogue between the rotunda that's 80 feet um, wide and our, our memorial, which is also 80 feet wide. And it, it's just, it, it tries to bring in these kind of cues from the existing landscape and relationships to how you approach the site.
0: Mm. I mean, as a way of drawing the conversation to a close, I wondered if, if you could share advice to young architects and students on how to go about understanding public space today and manifesting um, political histories and histories of power in a way that goes beyond the conventions we're familiar with. Mm-hmm
1: well i think it it really has you have to challenge your own education i still think that there is something you know and this goes back to the origin of the profession of architecture um in you know in figures like you know from palladio to thomas jefferson you know these kind of gentlemen practitioners right um you know that shifts a little bit once the field gets professionalized in the west in the 1850s right um but i still think that it 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 um like a lot of creative fields, music, or you know, around creative genius, right, um, you know, that you are this lone visionary, you know, and, and and architectural education is really predicated on that. But actually, if you really want to forge change and make difference, you've got to organize and you've got to work collaboratively. And in, in the truth of the way in which architecture is actually practiced is it's collaborative. You, you, you never, you're, you never, ever, ever, as an architect work alone. Um, and, and I think kind of recognizing the value of collaboration and that's how you enact change. And it's not instant, it takes time. You know, there were many students who pressured the university and they didn't do it individually, they did it collectively. Um, there were sit-ins and they were, and they, they made it visible. They did a competition um, to, to do that. That's why it's called the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers. That's what the students called it. And so we honor their activism by continuing with that name. And I think that is really um, central. And, and, I, and I think that, you know, um, my sense is my students get that. Like at Columbia, you know, we now have organizations, you know, of women students, uh, Latin students, African-American, Black students, um, queer students. Like, you know, they see themselves organizing collectively. And maybe it's because of these social media and all that. You know, or, the, or all of the organizing around labor um, in offices. Um, you know, again, the things like the architecture lobby, like you're, it's not about being the singular visionary any longer. I think the collective and the collaborative are really valuable if you want things to change. And that is part and part of the design process always.
0: Mabel, thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Power in Public Space is a co-production of Drawing Matter and the Architecture Foundation. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make the show. Check out the other episodes in this series, which are all online and ready to stream wherever you're hearing this now. If you like the show, leave a rating on iTunes, and thanks for listening.